The Jewish views on Mitzvah Day 2017. What will you be doing to make a difference to someone's life? Reminiscences, the exhibition by photographer Mike Stone, which puts Jewish World War II veterans in focus. And Neshema Festival. Find out why the education program for Orthodox women has been described as groundbreaking. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Labour Party has barred a potential council candidate who wrote that Jews have reaped the rewards of playing victims. Nazreen Khan had been shortlisted for the safe seat in Bradford despite posting several anti-Semitic Facebook comments five years ago. Ms Khan herself described her remarks, such as, what have the Jews done good in this world, as unacceptable. But mounting pressure has finally seen Labour remove her as a candidate. Prince Charles has been criticised for comments he made in a letter written more than 30 years ago in which he suggested an influx of, quote, foreign Jews was partly to blame for trouble in the Middle East. The contents of the letter, written during a trip to the region, were revealed in the Mail on Sunday. The prince appeared to believe that the establishment of the State of Israel was the result of bullying by an all-powerful Jewish lobby in the United States. A statement from Clarence House said the opinions expressed were not the prince's own, but of those he met during the visit. A 16-year-old Jewish student is recovering in hospital after being stabbed 12 times in an altercation on Primrose Hill in North London. The boy was in the park with four female friends when he was attacked by a group of white men who were apparently unknown to him. Police are appealing for witnesses who can call Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 one. The world's first Catholic Jewish school campus has been opened in Scotland by the Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis and the Bishop of Paisley, John Keenan. The Joint Faith Campus near Glasgow comprises St Clare's Primary School and Calderwood Lodge. It follows a £17 million investment, which has provided a shared central amphitheatre and two sports pitches, amongst other facilities. And finally, the 1980s pop icon Boy George has defied pro-Palestinian activists to perform in concert in Israel. Before the show, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement had urged him to cancel his performance to show solidarity with the Palestinian people. George has performed a few times before in Israel, and this time around he said on Twitter that he plays for his fans, not politicians. At the concert, he even wore an outfit that featured many red and gold stars of David. That's the news, the sports from Andrew. Thanks, Viv. Less than two weeks after Israeli judo fighters weren't allowed to represent Israel at an event in Abu Dhabi, Olympic winning medalist Or Sasson was allowed to have his country's symbols on his uniform at an openweight world championships in Morocco. His trip, which also saw him and his coach visit Marrakesh's only active synagogue, was though criticised by Moroccan political groups. Elsewhere, Benjamin Netanyahu welcomed stars from the world of mixed martial arts to the Knesset as Tel Aviv's Minora Miftachim Arena got set to host their Bellator event. Joking as he sparred with Israel's two prominent fighters, Noad Lahat and Chaim Ghazali, the Prime Minister told them, I need some of these gloves, I'm constantly punching without them. And finally, Ghana's failure to qualify for the 2018 World Cup is being blamed on Avram Grant despite the Israeli leaving the team nine months ago. Winfred O.C. Kwaku, vice-chairman of Ghana's executive committee, said, We are where we are because of Avram Grant. He didn't help matters at all. If we had been able to secure maximum points in our two opening games, we wouldn't have been talking like this. 
Don't forget, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let us begin, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. And joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer. Hello. And features editor Fran Wolford. Hi. Well, that was new. You don't normally say hello, you two. I just thought I'd throw something new out there for the first time. I don't think I'll do it again. That's all right. No, I, th- I think it's good to experiment. But anyway, let's continue and we'll have a look at the front page, which this week reads, This Sunday, let's proudly march in their memory. Of course, we're referring to the annual Ajax Parade. Yeah, Remembrance Sunday took place last weekend. This weekend, it's the Ajax Parade. And we have a large image of a Mug and Dovid poppy memorial on the front page with as you say the simple the simple statement let's march in their memory a headline that fran came up with uh, she also came up with a an interesting line if not you then who and this is our call to the community to be there at the cenotaph this weekend to mark many important moving profound landmarks obviously the the great war 99 years away from the the end of hostilities it's a hundred years since the battle of passchendaele began this weekend when 50 or so jewish soldiers lost their lives out of a total of about 500 jewish soldiers that lost their their lives during the the entire great war a new website's been launched called jewsfww.london that's jewsfww london which tells some incredible stories of young brave jewish men including 19-year-old Coleman Benjamin, another young man called Joseph Cohen, who who lost their lives fighting a long way from home in the the battlefields of Europe. So, um, yeah, on behalf of Ajax, it's our profound call that that we learn the lessons and pay our respects. And just because I like an anacronym as much as the next person, I'm guessing that Jews, FWW, something Jews from World War, would that be? An yeah. accurate assessment? Yeah, uh, JewsWorldWar.London. But yeah, it's JewsFWW.London. Excellent. And Fran, of course, it does seem as the years go on and we always have this conversation around this time of year, who will be the ones to carry this on if it's not the veterans themselves? It is quite a disturbing thought that we obviously live in an age now where we still have veterans, but that won't be the case in, say, 30, 40 years time. Or if there are any, there'd be very few. Absolutely. Um, You can feel that, can't you, as we sort of go year after year, fewer veterans are around and we do have to remember them. We absolutely have to remember the contribution that they made. My husband's grandfather was a Polish paratrooper who served in the British Army and you know, that's a story that touches our lives. And we, as the the grandchildren of this generation, should absolutely keep marching and keep their their heroic bravery alive. Because if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for their actions, we certainly wouldn't be sitting here today in our cosy little lives. And the world would look a very different place. Yeah, well, we certainly, the three of us probably may not have been sitting here in this cosy studio having a nice conversation. So yeah, we, we owe them everything. There's there's one other website that I'd like to mention, which is the uh, British Film Institute, BFI Player. They have some amazing footage. It's all getting digitalised. And I think next year they're finishing their project of digitalising over 100 years of British history. Now, if you type in Jewish, Ajax, A-J-E-X, you will see some footage of the Ajax parade from 1937 
where you can see men younger than me who you know fought in the trenches back in in those awful days who are, are marching with pride under the flags of Britain and, and the Star of David and who knows these men could have gone on to fight in the in the Second World War and and, and who knows where they their lives led but you can actually be placed before the Second World War between the Great Wars and actually get a feeling of how so little has changed. We commemorate now as we did then, but there's so much more to commemorate. Well, the BFI collection that you speak of, we will be finding out more next week on The Jewish Views as our very own arts editor Kate Fulton unpicks that for us. Let's have a look at some of the other stories making the paper this week. And Chief opens world's first Jewish Catholic campus. This seems quite a step in the right direction for interfaith. Yes, it's a very interesting move, isn't it? So the world's first Catholic Jewish school campus was opened this week by Chief Rabbi Mervis and Bishop John Keenan. And basically the campus comprises St. Clair's Primary School and Calderwood Lodge Primary. So it's a Catholic school and a Jewish school. Interestingly, Calderwood Lodge has many Muslim students there. So you actually have now created a campus that essentially has Catholic, Jewish and Muslim pupils all learning about each other's faiths. And obviously, you know, that's a a move to be applauded. At the same time, I did have to think, okay, well, you've kind of, you know, created this new campus and in the interests of interfaith relations, it's a wonderful thing. But why not then just have a school? It does seem that, you know, you're kind of dividing them still between faiths but yet do you see what i mean well, a sort, sort of, of a- but actually i mean i think i'd argue against that and say that the difference is that when you just have a state school which may have pupils of many different denominations there the emphasis is not on religion whereas with something like this the emphasis will be on the religion but it'll actually be primarily on catholicism and judaism and if there are muslim pupils there as well hopefully they will include the islamic faith in that. But the point being is that it will be part of their everyday lives there. Whereas in state schools, religion is not so much emphasised, it's more just learnt about in RE, but not necessarily put into practice. I think it's a really creative way to find a solution that suits all needs. Obviously, a lot of Jewish people don't want to send their children to segregated schools. They don't want to send them to single faith environments. And this is an opportunity to have faith and tradition at the very heart of an educational campus, but at the same time to offer multi-faith overview. So uh, interesting project. It's in Scotland. It'd be interesting to see if one opens here in England. I think in terms of creating a generation that is more diverse and understanding of each other's faiths, this is a really good move as well. Certainly does appear to be. Well, hopefully, with a bit of luck, they will be able to prove to all of us that this might just be the way forward. Now, Fran, page 27, your feature this week. Headline reads, I still feel like a Babylonian Jew. What have you been up to? Yeah, there's a very um, interesting documentary that was released on Friday called Remember Baghdad, which essentially it explores the stories of eight Jews who grew up in Iraq and were part of the flourishing Baghdad community where Jews had lived for 2,600 years and who were then forced to flee as the events of the 60s and 70s came to a head. And I actually caught up with Edwin Shuka, who now resides in Finchley. Unlike the other interviewees in the documentary, Edwin has always felt very connected back to his homeland and has actually always wanted to 
Well, he dreams of the Jewish community returning there one day, actually, much like it did in Berlin, where we can say, you know, with positive thoughts that the, the community in Berlin really has flourished now since the Second World War. And he believes the same could happen in Baghdad. Interestingly, he actually bought a house as well in Iraq. At the moment, it's obviously a symbolic move. He doesn't actually plan to live there. But he feels that as long as he owns a part of the country, he can say that Jews are still in Iraq and they haven't really left. You know, I was privileged enough to also see one of the early previews of this very film. And I just remember being absolutely riveted. I just didn't, almost didn't want to blink my eyes in case I missed something. It really is a fascinating story about a community that I confess I knew absolutely nothing about because I've pretty much grown up in a world where Jews don't live in Baghdad. And therefore, why would I even think of it? Why would I even know about it? It's just not really taught. Had it not been for this documentary, I don't think I would have known just how wonderful the life seemed for these Jews living in Baghdad. They had extravagant parties. They lived in very nice houses. They were essentially quite well to do. A lot of them, they mingled with officials and royalty and they really were sort of top of the society and that obviously all came to an end and quite dramatically as well you know coup after coup and then obviously the founding of the state of Israel they had their passports taken away and freedoms taken away and life really wasn't at all what it once had been. Now, I'd urge anyone listening, if you do get the chance to please do watch Remember Baghdad. Okay, very quickly, let's just shoehorn in a bit about Mitzvah Day, which takes place this year on Sunday, the 19th of November. It's round again, Rich. Yeah, not just the Ajax Parade. It's also the weekend of Mitzvah Day. This has become a bit of a cultural phenomenon, I'd say, along with Shabbat UK. It's probably the, the number one Jewish calendar event that's just taken the community's interest and imagination by storm. The day where no good deed goes unmerited. Even small deeds, tiny things and big things are all worth doing. Schools and shuls, community centres, families. We have a feature this week about families that are getting together to pair up for good deeds on this mitzvah day. For the Jewish News' own part, we were down at Cecil Rosen Court, the JBD, the lovely facilities they've got there in, in Bushy, only opened a few years ago. It's stunning. We were sat there talking to the residents about the Jewish News and the Jewish community and all the issues and concerns that vex them on a, a weekly basis. And they got a chance to pick holes in the Jewish News editor and, and the team. So we had a wonderful time down there. Thank you to all the JBD staff that organised that. Special day and a very special day in the Jewish year. Terrific. It is indeed. Thank you both very much indeed. That's all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. But don't forget to you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, as you've just been hearing, Mitzvah Day is nearly upon us once more. It's on Sunday, the 19th of November 2017, to be precise. And of course, across the community, various synagogues, organisations and just individuals will be taking part and making sure that they change someone's life for the better. But the question is, what's in store for us for this year's event and how has it differed to previous years? To tell me more, I'm delighted to say that we can now speak to Executive Director of Mitzvah Day, Dan Rickman. Dan, can we start off with anyone who perhaps hasn't heard of Mitzvah Day and even just now listening to the paper review, I'm sure they have. But just remind us how it all began and what it's about. 
Mitzvah Day is the biggest day of social action that exists in the UK, and I'd like to think international calendar. It was formed by our chair and founder, Laura Marks, in 2005. She started with what I believe was 100 people all volunteering in a hotel. And now in 2017, for this year, we plan to have over 40,000 people all over the world doing different projects. And one of the key things about Mitzvah Day is that it's about people giving their time, not their money. And with those 40,000 people, how are they coordinated? Because I'm guessing it's not all done by your amazing team here in northwest London. How do you coordinate it? Yeah, as you say, I mean, I have a fantastic staff team here who work really, really hard around the clock and all year round. But we're heavily reliant on our 700 plus coordinators who really, they're, they're the real superstars who make sure make sure everything happens. So, for example, if you have a synagogue in Finchley, that mitzvah day will largely be organised by the Finchley Synagogue Coordinator, and they do a lot of work. They'll work very closely with a specific member of my team who will guide them through that process as well. It seems a bit strange to call it mitzvah day, because although obviously the actual day is Sunday the 19th of November this year, correct me if I'm wrong, it's kind of an all-year occurrence. There's always something going on, isn't there? Yeah, so I think there's two elements to that question. First of all, a day like Mitzvah Day with over 40,000 people, that doesn't just happen on one day. So myself and the team have to work really, really hard throughout the year to prepare, to get people to sign up, to plan projects, to think of things to make it different each year. So that obviously takes a lot of work and we, we work on that really from, you know, from, from next week, we'll be already thinking about next year's campaign. But the other side of it is, as you also mentioned, is that we have projects that go on throughout the year. And what I've tried to do since I came into the charity is really focus those touch points. So we use specific touch points throughout the year and we we call them Mitzvah Day 365 projects. So in in the winter, we'll do Tubishvat and we'll focus on environmental projects. In the early spring, we'll do Purim and we'll get people to give Mishlau Manot as part of a, again as part of a three six five project. Then during Pesach, we will we work very closely with Gift and we get people to give away their chametz to needy people. And then we have other faiths days of celebration. So we work with the Muslims on Sadaka Day and we work with the Hindus on Sever Day. So really, as you say, all throughout the year, there's different things going on to we encourage people to get involved in different mitzvah day projects. Give us a bit of an example of some of the things that people would do on mitzvah day, because obviously anyone can say that they've done a good deed, they've done a mitzvah, but that could just be speaking to someone who might be feeling a bit lonely. But tell us the kind of things that you would encourage people to do on mitzvah day. We use the word mitzvah in what we would call the kind of colloquial sense, because obviously mitzvah technically just means doing a commandment. But, you know, as the years have gone by, people understand that word, you know, whether you're walking a lady across the street or, or going to visit your grandma, you know, we use that, we use it in that more colloquial sense of doing a good deed. But the type of projects people really get involved in are things like, it's, it's all very hands-on where you can see instant dividends. So it might be cooking and feeding homeless people, doing an environmental project where you're clearing up gardens, doing things like standing outside a supermarket, running collections for homeless shelters. And obviously, and our key theme this year is Le Dor Vador, which is generation to generation. And the big thing we've pushed this year is intergenerational volunteering, which of course can be expressed throughout all different kinds of projects. 
So the most popular one would be Sunshine to Seniors, where groups go to care homes and actually visit visit elderly people. But also we're really encouraging families to get involved and do volunteering side by side because in you know in today's busy world, we don't always have the time to do that. And we're using Mitzvah Day as an opportunity to re-engage with people of all different ages volunteering side by side. Those of us with a keen memory will know that we spoke to you on this very programme last year, obviously for last Mitzvah Day. How would you say the charity and the organisation has come on since then in the last 12 months? A year ago, I was just under a year into my new role as executive director. And I would say the charity has grown a lot. We've brought on three new trustees. We're going to have an extra member of staff next year. And the big thing, you know, the biggest change for us, well, I should say there's a few big changes. One would be that for the first time we've introduced a theme, the the Lador Vador theme, which I just talked about. But the other thing we've made up are subtle changes. We had a launch party this year for the first time in Jewish Care, which was attended by over 100 people. And actually we've made another bold decision to move our awards till next year. So instead of celebrating on Mitzvah Day itself, we've got an, another amazing opportunity in January, on January the 30th, actually, for all of our coordinators to come together and celebrate what they achieved on Mitzvah Day. And what mitzvahs will you be achieving on Mitzvah Day? <laughs> So I'll be I'll be running around Northwest London with one of my film crews. I'll be starting at Radlett United, going to an intergenerational interfaith tea. I'll then be going to uh, Edgware and Hendon Reform, where they've got various projects going on. Then I'm going to Langdon for probably the project I'm most excited about which is we've got 20 or over 20 young professionals pairing up with Langdon members to do a whole variety of projects. They're doing cooking, they're sorting collections, they're making tote bags to send to Israel and they're writing cards for Israeli soldiers. Then I'm going to Edgware Mazorti for another interfaith tea, but this one they have a choir. And then finally, I'm ending my day in Stanmore, Stanmore United, where they're doing a post-Ajax parade tea. So you're being quite lazy then, in other words. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just to say... You just can't be bothered this year, can you? Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Usual day, chilling and watching the football. It's interesting that you mention about Edgware and Hendon Reform, because do you know what Edgware and Hendon Reform's Hebrew name is? I don't know. Lador Vador. Oh, very nice. So there you go. Very fitting. It all goes together. If anyone wants more information, where do they go? What do they do? Well, at this stage, get on the website. But really, I would say give us a call and we'll see what we can do to help. Dan Rickman, Executive Director of Mitzvah Day. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us today. And if you would like more information on how you can play your part for Mitzvah Day 2017, then do go to our website, which is jewishviews.co.uk, where we'll put a link to their website with all the information you need. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News and still to come on this edition will be our Jewish schmooze. Now today Clive is not here, he's taking a very well-earned week off so I, along with Tony Honickberg, will be joined by community volunteer Andy Lucas and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society Judy Carbritz. We'll be discussing women's roles within Judaism and how they have progressed. That is because community editor Diana Toman will be speaking later on to Rebetzin and Frida Kaplan, this off the back of the chief rabbi having officially announced an educational initiative for women that he hopes is going to set a new tone within the British Jewish community. So that will be the basis of the schmooze discussion as well. 
But first, seeing as the annual Ajax Parade is upon us once more, it somehow seems incredibly fitting that our next guest's work focuses entirely around the Jewish World War II veterans. Photographer Mike Stone's collection, called Reminiscences, is based on the imagery of World War II veterans, and hopefully it tells a story merely through the expression in which you see in his work. Well, I'm not going to sit here and explain it. Instead, we have sent our very own Harley Baptiste along to find out a little more for us. Harley has been speaking to Mike himself, and he started by asking him why it was specifically he started photographing people. I started photographing people because uh, it was the most interesting thing to do. Uh, And one of the great things I found very quickly about photographing people is that once you photograph them, that's it. It's done. They leave the building. You can't come back to them. um, And it's all over. You move on to the next thing. I guess there's a a little more to it as well in terms of different expressions and emotions from it and all that sort of stuff too. Yeah, well, it's always fascinating to meet people. I mean, I've had I've had the great privilege of meeting people from people in positions of great power to the ordinary working man and woman. And it's a real fascinating insight into life, photographing people. So looking at this exhibition, I mean, just looking at your work in general, the people always stand out amazing well um, from from the page that they are on. What was the reasoning to, to shooting this project, this gallery specifically? Well, this came about, I'd been doing some commercial work with Age UK. I'd been working on a big project looking at dementia care. And in the course of that, slightly paradoxically, I came across a lot of people with very acute memories, especially old soldiers. And having met all these old soldiers with great memories of the past, of their wartime exploits, and with some very interesting views on the present world and how things turned out, I thought, you know, there's perhaps a story there within my own community. So I got in touch with Ajax and they introduced me to some Second World War veterans and I started to photograph and interview them. And it's very suitable with obviously with Remembrance Day having just gone and this project specifically is Reminiscence Veterans, if I'm correct? Yeah, it's a, it comes under the umbrella of a larger project that I started which I've called Reminiscences which is really, it's a vehicle for the portraits and interviews that I've been doing on a few subjects. And obviously, veterans is a, is a great example of that. But I worked previously with a group of Irish travellers recording their community stories and doing portraits of various members over in Ireland. And that was the first reminiscences project that I did. This, this one with Jewish veterans has been the second one, and hopefully there'll be many more to come after that. Hmm. And... It's, it's interesting because we can learn so much from veterans and service men and service women and just people who have lived through throughout that era, really. And um, were there any interesting stories that you kind of shared with the people during a shooting session? Well, just about just about every veteran had a whole bank of great stories. And I think I think perhaps because of the time of life that they've reached, they were quite uninhibited with some of their stories. I mean, a great deal of humour in them. One particular chap, Colonel Rothband, up in Manchester, had a great store of stories, which are probably best left for people to read the, his interviews on the Reminiscences website already. But yeah, generally great humour, some real insight. And it is it is a bank of knowledge that perhaps we 
should go and have a have a look at really because they lived through lived through some very challenging times with a lot of similar challenges to the ones we face today and we can learn a lot from their experience of having to particularly in the realm of anti-semitism and extremism that they stood up and fought against i think there are lessons that we can draw from that mm. and something and a project like this really shows just a person's character and as you say the experiences and everything they've been through and there isn't just photography is there i believe there's some audio to it as well yep i'm recording i'm recording audio interviews with all the subjects as well i'm using those as the basis of the transcripts for the interviews but i'm also editing the audio and ultimately all those audio interviews will be up on the reminiscences website they'll form part of the archive because I, what I'd like to do is for all of this material to be put into a collection somewhere where it can be freely accessed. That's, that's one of the things that a lot of the subjects are very keen as well. They would like people to be able to access their stories as perhaps part of the legacy that they leave. Yes, it's, it's incredibly important to be able to not just see the you know the, the people who have lived through zeros, but also be able to hear what they've lived through and compare it to kind of what what we're going through now and seeing the the minute similarities that bring things a little more into into contrast in life and the actual reminiscences project i believe the majority of it is in black and white however the veterans is in color i mean correct me if i'm wrong but is is there a reasoning behind that well the irish traveler project was shot in black and white the veterans you correctly say are all in color I would put that down to artistic judgment on my part um, uh, for each project as they come along. There were technical reasons the Irish project was shot under some very challenging conditions and black and white technically worked a lot better for that. Most of my work these days is in colour. So tell us about the selection process. How did you approach? Who did you approach? Tell us about that. The selection process was very simple, really. There was one criteria and that was that uh, somebody had served with the British Armed Forces during the Second World War. Re- everyone was effectively self-selecting. I've had one person that I approached who was initially interested but ended up not being very keen and decided not to go ahead with it. But everyone else, I've started off by talking to AJEX, the Association of Jewish Ex-Servicemen, and they introduced me to a couple of ex-servicemen uh, who were happy to take part. They introduced me to others who they knew. I I put the word out amongst my community up here in Barnet through friends and family. And people started approaching me, Mm. letting me know, oh, I've got a grandfather who served in the war. Perhaps you'd like to be introduced to him. Uh, And it snowballed from there. I've got an outstanding list of about 30 people at the moment. A community group effort has really come together to bring this exhibition to life, isn't it? It has. I mean, you know, one extraordinary coincidence, I was in the Jewish deli in Glasgow having a conversation with someone about the project and a lady who was sitting at the next table approached me and said, well, perhaps I've just overheard you and I'm very sorry, perhaps you would like to meet my husband. He served with the commandos in the Second World War. I mean, it's as serendipitous as that. And you, so you have recently exhibited this project, um, and I know people can see it on your websites. But are there any plans to get it on any displays as well? Get it out there in any physical sense? Well, I was very fortunate that the Wiener Library in Russell Square offered me a space for 
to have a little pop-up exhibition last week. I'd been doing some work with them and they really liked the sound of the project, although it's not quite their remit. And they suggested helping by holding a pop-up. And the reason for holding that really was to get some more interest in the project. I've been funding and organizing this entire thing myself so far. And what I'd ideally love is one of the big institutions to come in and say, you know, that's fabulous. <laughs> can we have it? Uh, and how can we help you complete it? So ideally, I would love one of the major institutions to come along and say, yeah, we'd like it and we want to put it on show and then place it in their archives. Well, I'm I'm sure like you, um, I'm awaiting that day with bated breath. I'm looking forward to it. And just finally then, um, where can people go to see and obviously hear, there's audio segment to it as well, see and hear your work? Well, there's the website reminiscences.uk, which is where all the materials being posted. There's, uh, I think there's three or four of the soldiers' interviews up there already uh, in pictures and the written word. And in the very near future, I'll be uploading the audio interviews as well. Sounds fascinating, doesn't it? So I highly recommend that you do have a look at some of Mike's work because, honestly, it is truly mesmerising. I have had the good privilege of seeing some of his photographs already and they really are something incredible. If you would like more information or indeed a link to those photographs, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Still to come on this edition of The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News will be our Jewish schmooze. Don't forget, we live stream The Schmooze every Thursday evening from 7pm at Greenwich Mean Time. And if you would like to watch the discussion unfold, then all you have to do is go to facebook.com forward slash The Jewish Views and you'll be able to comment along as the discussion unfolds before your very eyes. But don't forget, we also love to hear from you in general. You can also comment on any of the stories that you've heard through throughout the program you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via twitter we are simply at jewishviewsuk now a new initiative by the office of the chief rabbi has officially been announced it's an educational initiative for women that he hopes is going to set the tone within the british jewish community it is called the neshema festival and to find out more for us community editor diana tobin has been speaking to rebetzin frida kaplan from the hampster garden suburbs synagogue and diana started by asking rebetzin kaplan to tell us why this particular festival means so much to her I think it's an opportunity. The chief rabbi turned to me and a few others quite a few months ago about looking to do something special, something creative, something different for women, which was a bit of a challenge. And I think the idea is the opportunity to understand that you can access Torah, access Jewish knowledge in lots and lots of different mediums. So we're going to be hopefully doing that evening, lots of different creative things. I love the idea of getting hopefully hundreds of women together, a very eclectic group of women, age-wise where they come from. Some might come in groups, some will come in as individuals, but it's open for all. And hopefully the idea is that each one will get an opportunity to taste something that maybe till now she hasn't had. How many sessions will it involve? And the other thing I wanted to ask you was, if it involves, as I've read, film, music, art and dance... That's a lot to take in on a one-off event. Is it going to be interactive or are the participants just going to be sitting and looking at things, basically? The way we're doing it, it's in the format of workshops. So there will be an opportunity of choosing between nine, possibly ten workshops. 
Some will be more passive and some will be more active, an opportunity to taste. And what we're asking the women to do is when they sign up on the tw- uh, signings starting on the 20th of November, they will have there already the bios and the opportunity of understanding what the different workshops are. And you can choose. So one of them, as you said, is, is to do with possibly understanding. It's something to do with dance and music and art but from a Jewish Torah perspective. So you'd be learning possibly a piece of Torah, but the expression of how to learn it would be through dance. Another thing is we're bringing over from Israel, from the Ma'aleh School, which is a religious film school in, in Jerusalem, and we're bringing over some of their films. And so there it's an opportunity to be a little bit more passive. There's also going to be some very special educators coming over who are going to be doing some quite serious deep learning. So there's that opportunity as well. Hopefully as well, we'll be joining us somebody called Esther Waxman, whose son was kidnapped many years ago and sadly as a soldier was killed. She's also a mother of a child with Down syndrome and she is a very positive, special woman who's going to be talking about the meaning of life for her and, and sort of Torah in her life. So it, it's your choice. You might want to go to two where you're going to be passive or you might go to might be adventurous and go to two where you're going to be active. In the work, we're going to be writing what, a little bit of a brief on each one so you know what's happening. The biggest challenge, I think, is going to be how to choose two out of all of these sessions. Do all this on one evening? First of all, we're putting on coaches as well so to allow if the women want to because it might be difficult to get to. So hopefully, I would love to think that on the coach, the women are going to come and there's already going to be music. It's going to feel that that's already part of the festival when you get on the coach. Then we're all going to be joining together from Musical Havdalah to bring out Shabbat and then there's going to be the two workshops each for 45 minutes and the end of the evening is we have a wonderful female band called Nafsha who are I think it's five or six women who play all sorts of instruments and sing and we're going to have a half an hour concert together of all the women together so yes it's going to be incredibly busy but it's an opportunity to taste hopefully different things and get excited in a different way. Talking about taste this is a Jewish event I imagine there's food included somewhere along the line. Yes, so that was a bit of a challenge. How do you feed so many people in such a short time? So we've written a light supper. There was going to be, we're we're working, I'm not quite sure whether I'm supposed to be saying names yet, but there will be sort of taster foods, different salads, different things. There'll be four different corners, food corners, that the women during the evening, when they're going from space to face, will have an opportunity to sort of pick something up and sort of run with it. So there will be food to eat as well, a light supper. Would this be from different cuisines? No, in fact, we've got somebody doing it for us. It's mainly salads. It's not, it's, the, the food was not, this is more food for the soul than, than food for the body tonight. And I think after a full Shabbat of eating, you don't really need too much to eat anyway. How do you expect people to be able to replicate this at a local level? Are they going to have any sort of guidance as to how to do that? Because that is presumably what the Chief Rabbi is hoping is going to happen. So definitely the idea is that things will be happening. This will be a very nice springboard for lots of local events, bigger, smaller. One of the things that's important that hopefully on this evening will be an opportunity to showcase the Maya Not, which is the female leadership program that Chief Rabbi has been has sort of like put out there and been, we've got some wonderful women. So they will be involved in the festival. And then also with communities, there's all sorts of ideas of things that we can do afterwards. And we hope another thing to produce is, is possibly the learning opportunities that already exist in the community that sometimes people just don't know where they are. So there's hopefully going to be a more organised opportunity of knowing what's happening and a helping hand to communities who want to do different things on different levels. But this is definitely an opportunity to celebrate, to come together. The word festival wasn't chosen lightly. 
and all of the different things so you to have a to have a feeling of coming together and we hope leaving everybody with a little bit of taste for more one final question what is the significance of the name neshama neshama means soul and as i said before so it's the festival of the soul and it's it's the it's used in the feminine so neshama is, is a feminine in hebrew obviously you have the masculine and the feminine so it's a festival of the soul and as we said we hopefully we're going to be giving a lot of food for soul and an opportunity of something coming together a lot of people and the more women that come i think the more celebration we're going to be having so this is a real plug to say please come and join us Rabbits and Frida Kaplan talking to community editor Diana Toman there about the Neshema educational program from the chief rabbi's office. You're listening to The Jewish Views and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where normally guests would join Clive Roslin in the studio to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the program so far. Clive is taking a very well-earned week off this week and instead you are lumbered with me, Phil Dave, and joining Tony Honigberg and me today are community volunteer Andy Lucas and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz. And the subject for this edition is based on Diana's interview that we have just heard. The chief rabbi, as you know by now, has officially announced an educational initiative for women that he hopes will set a new tone within the British Jewish community. The question is, how far have women come within Judaism and are we at risk of losing traditional gender-led roles? Andy, let's start with you. As someone who I know for a fact is part of a reform community, I'm guessing that this sort of progression must please you. It does please me. I think it's a wonderful idea. And I think that it would be lovely if more orthodox communities took up the the lead on it. You know, I Well, it do- can't get much more than the chief rabbi, surely. No, but it's the individual synagogues that are interesting, interested in doing it. Um, if the individual synagogues and their, their rabbis don't want to know, it's not going to happen. It's the more forward-thinking rabbis that will make it happen. And I do know of a the wife of a rabbi is going to take Samicha in America. I think it's this year. This is an Orthodox rabbi. An Orthodox rabbi, yes. Um, he's set up his own community as well, I believe. I'm not mentioning names. No. Um, but, you know, she's very well, you know, she really is quite well known. She's a lovely, lovely lady and very forward thinking. You know, if, if you go back to biblical times, women took part in services. I don't know. I don't know what part of the service they took part in, but they did take part in services. Well, you yeah. were there, were you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, am I that old? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, and so, what we're doing now is we're reinventing what happened in biblical times because they now have a thing called the Partnership Minion, yeah. which is orthodox, but it's all about women taking part in services. Yeah. Judy, is, is this reinventing it, or is well, this something that you're you're pleased to see happen? To be honest, I'm not that bothered either way because I don't go very often. It doesn't affect me personally. And I think we are totally equal in in everything we want to be equal in. Well, I, you say we being a less, less religious yeah. Jew. But the truth of the matter is that there is some orthodoxy who would argue that they are not as equal. And surely this goes yeah. some way into uh, ensuring that there is more equality. Which is how this partnership is I don't know, started. because right. if you're talking about it happening um, more 
equality in the orthodox shuls, will they still be sitting behind the women, still be sitting behind the curtains? Well, they might be sitting separately. But sitting not, but separately not, but not, but not is every, a good thing. But not every shawl sits behind a curtain. I mean, in my shawl that I go to, there's an upstairs and there's no curtain. There you was certainly a curtain when I went recently in, in Ilford. There was one in a united shawl. But when I'm with my husband and women are with their husbands or male partners, there is far greater decorum I'm not talking about sitting with friends, women friends, men friends, but if you're with your husband, I know when I am with Alan, we're not going to have a chat about everyone's hats and what they're wearing. I, I'll Is that with there. or without an argument beforehand? Oh, no, we don't know. <laughs> well, he's had to drag me there, maybe. But we're there and we'll stay there for the whole service. If women sit together like they do in an Orthodox synagogue, and men sit downstairs. The men are gabbing and just talking and talking and talking. They're not really following the service. And the women are doing the same thing. Yes. Very rarely do they follow but the service. But in reform... But is this something to do with... But is this something to do with equality within the religion because specifically the focus of this discussion is about how far women have come in Judaism over the years. And to say that it's to do with being separated in shul... Does that mean to you some sort of equality? No, is that is equality? But I would say, with regards to this particular discussion, surely then, based on that, then the chief rabbi's initiative of trying to help Orthodox women in their study of Torah, this is obviously going in the right direction. Though, of course, Andy, this is something that the Reform movement have done for many, many decades. Absolutely, we do it all the time, and I believe that some of the Orthodox do it. They have women's services. Women they have, they services. do. Stanmore, I think, That's started right. a women's they, they only. Service. That's right. They and started that a long time ago. Uh, linked in with Stanmore, I think. The Did time. they? Yeah. I don't can't remember don't, that, but I know that Stanmore have done it for many, yeah, many years right. under Jeffrey Cohen. Yeah. That, you know, because he was lovely. And they carry the Torah, they do everything in their services. So but years and so, years so we, and so years we, ago women learned that it was it was frowned upon that women learnt the Torah and, and read from the Torah. Yeah, I don't it know where this comes from. I don't know why this came about, but it came about know. in hundreds and hundred, over hundreds yeah, of years, I guess. absolutely. Um, but women have always been very see, interested. See, now with this thing I mentioned earlier, the partnership minion, which is under orthodox auspices. Yeah. I mean, like my granddaughter was bat mitzvah this year, and she laned and... Her sister, obviously another granddaughter, her sister did a nimsmirot. Women got called up to say the brachot because they wanted it as, if anything, it went a little bit too far the other way with mostly the women doing a lot of the stuff and rather than the men doing. Did you as, have a call up? Yes. And one of her aunts actually did the haftorah. So it was mainly centred around the women more because than it, it was around the men. Presumably because it was a bat mitzvah and not a bar mitzvah. Maybe, yeah. We'll find out when the bar mitzvah comes along and see what they want <laughs> yeah, to do then. Exactly. We've got a few years yet. Isn't the problem with all of this, though, and this may be very rich coming from me, I've openly told people on this programme before that I am reform, and therefore, naturally, I would agree more in equality than I would in, say, separating men and women. However, 
at the same time, I am a huge believer in tradition. And I can't help but think that the beauty of the way that the religion has so many branches at the moment is orthodoxy is that element of tradition. You follow standard rules that have been around for generation after generation. And the reform movements, the liberal movements, progressive movements, they are the ones that you turn to if you did want to, as it were, move with the times. So to start tampering with orthodoxy, where ultimately they are fundamentally and foundationally based on tradition. Somehow, doesn't this sort of smack you as a bit wrong? Uh, well, no. I they're, move, they're becoming they're modern. They're moving with the times. I think and that's basically. But that's what, what progressive doing. movements have done for years. Yeah, but I think also I think Judaism in general has done that for years. Chabad do it. Chabad are very reform in their orthodox outlook. Yeah, they're absolutely. very accepting. Go of figure. Lots of, <laughs> no, it's, it's peculiar, isn't that peculiar? But they are very reforming. And they are always orthodox. have been. We used to have Lubavitch people coming in to check our scrolls were weren't pasul. Yeah, um, always. So you know, and that was that was the men, obviously, because they were the only ones who were allowed to do it. But you know, it, they've done it for mm. years. They've always been all-encompassing you know they might try and persuade you that maybe you could go to their synagogue but otherwise no otherwise they are exactly and and if you go to america america what i call american judaism which i mentioned before on this program american judaism orthodox american judaism is quite reforming its outlook also in fact is that what they call conservative judaism no conservative conservative is a bit of reform but like mazorti it's been mazorti the conservative in america is much more like our reform yes and the the next one down their reform is like our liberal, right? It's yeah. like our liberal, uh, and then above that, and then above that, you've got, got the the orthodox, the orthodox. But they, but they, but they, even the orthodox, that's if more like, like the one And but then you get above that, and they're also still. Yeah. quite liberal and reforming in the way they carry out things. Yes. You know, I know one shawl in New York. I think there were four services, four different, different levels. levels of. <laughs> levels. Orthodoxy. I was going to say, that's a very short-lived community. Four services, (laughs) is that it? That's it. (laughs) But they, on different floors, and at the end, they all came together on the ground floor for a Kiddush. Kiddush. I wonder how much the change in society as well, at large, has got to do with the progression of the different branches of Judaism. Because if we were to, say, compare now to 50 years ago, for argument's sake, and there was a much more traditional sense of women weren't quite so career-focused to say they are nowadays, whereas in this day and age, we are much more in line of an equal playing field where men and women are absolutely entitled to their career paths and it's not so black and white as to who's going to keep home and who's going to. No, that's, that's true. Has, Sometimes you've got a home husband, husband haven't so you? So maybe that's that it, maybe 50, that could 50. be something to do with the way that synagogues are also changing to reflect and that. I, and I think Absolutely. Judaism in general over the years has has taken on modern themes and moved with the times. And maybe that, slowly, but they, eventually they have moved with the times, yeah, and, and we've I've kept up to date. I've said it before. I think the religion to a great extent, is polarizing and will continue to do so. We've got some people who are far more religious. I know uh, quite a few families where their children will now not eat at the parents' house. Which or I they think is disgusting. have to keep special... And, and I think that's wrong. 
it's it is do mind if I ask out of interest why you think it's disgusting only because the only reason I ask is because if you were to say that someone is religious enough that they would like to keep strictly kosher uh, no Phil it cannot ever be because in the Ten Commandments it's it honour thy honor mother, mother and mother. father mother. before kosher meat absolutely and if you, the parents keep kosher but it's not it's how it's, they were brought up it's good enough all those years I, I get mean, very I mean, angry if, they, if they've got I would just like to throw in, in I was there. just asking. If, got, <laughs> if, the, if the parents have got trafe in the house, that's a different thing. Absolutely, but if, if they've been brought up... But they can up, still go and have a cup of tea. Yeah, have, you know. exactly. You know, I had a cousin who um, her son went out and married, ended up marrying a really orthodox girl. And unless she bought everything with a hechsha, she wouldn't allow, you know, they wouldn't eat that, or she wouldn't See, eat that. The, the son would, but she wouldn't allow the grandchildren. She wouldn't allow them to look after That's the grandchildren so unless they bought everything with a hechsha. That's so naughty. On the other hand, I know I know people from majority and, and reform whose children have become orthodox, and subsequently the parents have become more yes. religious. And yes. you probably know people as well. Yes. Absolutely, so, and, so and sometimes that's that not moves a problem. That's no? not that I don't see a problem with um, people getting more religious. But what I do think is it's insulting that if you've been brought up in a house where um, your your family have kept kosher, yeah, yes. it's good enough. Um, exactly. you know, even if they haven't kept separate milk and meat, they've brought all kosher meat mm. to suddenly, you know not eat at your parents' house, I think I is think, totally I don't think, wrong. I don't think that's right. Well, um, and a friend of mine had sat shiva and her son was like this and the rabbi said to him during the shiva week, you eat at your mother's. It mm. doesn't matter. Um, so he did. Yes. It's like well, the no, food aspect her. is the be all and end all of the religion. Well, it's interesting the way that this conversation has taken a turn from female <laughs> progression to food. But, <laughs> but we're Jewish. You've Jewish, got females yeah, here. Then again, having said that, what Jewish discussion doesn't ultimately end in food? But Absolutely. unfortunately, that is where we have to leave it. We are out of time. But my thanks all the same to community volunteer Andy Lucas and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can always email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. And now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue. Toldot introduces us to Jacob and Esau and their rivalry over the birthright. It is a parsha of twins and nations in embryo. Jacob will emerge as Israel, our patriarch. Brother Esau or Edom will be locked in enmity with Israel until the Messianic era. The tension begins as early as Rebecca's pregnancy when we're told that the two fought inside her. Even at this stage, the Midrash is not shy to demonize Esau in its conjecture that whenever Rebekah walked past a place of idolatry, Esau tried to burst out. When she passed a place of Torah learning, Jacob made his bid for freedom. We're told that Esau became a man who knew hunting, a man of the fields, and Jacob was a wholesome man who made his life in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because of the hunt was in his mouth, and Rebekah loved Jacob. It seems that they've picked favorites. Isaac taking pride in Esau's manly pursuits, Rebekah drawn to Jacob, who helped out around the house. 
Does the Torah want to paint a picture that somehow Isaac and Rebekah had a hand in the tension between their children? And how could Isaac get it so wrong that he favored the villain of the piece? If we look at the expression carefully, Isaac loved Esau because the hunt was in his mouth, and Rebekah loved Jacob, we see that while a reason is given for Isaac's love of Esau, Esau's hunting prowess, no reason is given when we're told that Rebekah loved Jacob. The 12th century commentator, the Radak, says of the discrepancy that of course Isaac loved goody-goody Jacob. That went without saying, quite literally. The Torah's focus is on Isaac's more surprising love of Esau and his reluctance to write his son off. While Esau is vilified by tradition as a wayward child, he nonetheless found an avenue which made his father proud of him, and he honored his father by bringing him the delights of the hunt. What do we learn from the verse's contrast with Rebekah's love for Jacob? On the face of it, Rebekah's love for Jacob is unqualified. She had every reason to love him and none not to. This was bolstered by the prophecy that God had given her during pregnancy, that the elder and initially stronger would eventually serve the younger. From this perspective, Isaac represents confidence in the leadership he perceives. Rebekah represents faith in the leadership she anticipates. This interpretation resolves another contrast set up by the verse. On close reading, it says, Isaac loved Esau in the past tense, but the Hebrew continues, Rebekah loves Jacob in the present. Isaac's love, predicated on an optimistic gloss over Esau's deficiencies, or on the imagination that leadership was synonymous with brute force, was a love that existed but elapsed. Rebecca's love, rooted in her faith in Jacob's noble qualities, is a love which exists and endures. Our Torah gives us patriarchs and matriarchs who are real people, with real hopes and real faults and real flaws. If our biblical forebears were only all good or all evil, they would be like Goldilocks' three bears, fairy tale characters with nothing much to teach. Instead, we have a narrative which challenges us to understand and challenges us to learn. Our Parsha teaches us, through Isaac, that we should look for the positive in people. However, we should not blind ourselves to their flaws or the need for admonition, the need to set them right. Sometimes you need to tell someone that they're wayward to help them find their way back. And Rebecca teaches that what underpins love can't necessarily be articulated or explained. It can come from an inner conviction. From Rebecca, we learn that when our love is a love of virtue, that love lives on. And what of love that goes without saying? The Radax commentary is an explanation, but not an affirmation. We might know that we love our family so much that it goes without saying. But if we love them, we should tell them, even so. Just listening to Rabbi Lawrence there makes me consider myself to be incredibly fortunate that I have grown up in a family that we have constantly told each other how much we love each other. And it really does make a massive difference in, frankly, a mental way. Just knowing that you have the support and love of one's family, I can completely understand why Rabbi Lawrence stresses the importance of making sure that we do tell those around us that we do love them. So there you go. Thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence of Kinloss United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much indeed to our guests, to Dan Rickman, the executive director of Mitzvah Day, to photographer Mike Stone telling us about reminiscences, to Rebbets and Frieda Kaplan telling us about the groundbreaking Neshema Festival for female education. Thanks also goes to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honickberg, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste. 
You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.